into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating our citizens as less than human. God damn America. Okay. It's Friday night. Remember that song? I know you were saving your song for an important part. (laughs) Have you ever noticed how much podcasters love to sing? It's crazy. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like this tendency that people have when they stumble across a line that is also like a lyric and everyone's just trying to fill time all the time. Whenever I'm walking past Sean's room and he's streaming, I just hear him like go in. He's like talking about Bukharin or something and then he's just like goes into steely dan because he accidentally said the phrase dirty work and i'm like man we're making so much content here and there this is great i mean when you have a beautiful voice like sean's you can't hide that under a bushel basket you have you have to share that with the world i don't know i think uh my voice is pretty all bright we did an episode on that yeah well, what's this? What's the song for the final imperialism? The f- this is the final stage of capitalism. I have to be careful. My girlfriend gave me a tongue lashing. She like was furious. Oh, fellas, don't me. you hate it when that I happens? Hear about your personal life, my friend. Before, like a couple minutes before we started, I was singing Spoon Man by Pearl Jam, and there's no non-annoying way to sing that song. But <laughs> isn't that sound absolutely livid? Is it? This MF saying Spoon Man's by Pearl Jam at the beginning of the Lennon episode. Oh my God, Jorge, I'm oh, so you're right. sorry. Hello, everyone. <laughs> oh Welcome to the show. <laughs> it's Pod Damn America, the Gothic Socialist podcast about dumb shit for morons. And speaking of Lennon, imagine all the people doing imperialism. It's I'm Jake Flores. <laughs> Alex Patak is here. And I'm Alex Patak. Welcome to the show. Anders Lee is here. Anders Lee here. Ringo of the party. <laughs> Self-assigned Ringo. And uh, joining us today to talk about Lenin's imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, very smart theory, reading communist Jorge Rocha from Everybody Loves Communism. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, Jorge, yeah. you're what they would call a reading a book motherfucker. <laughs> What did you think of this book that you you told us you took down right right before this episode started Destroyed a day it. ago? Um, I thought it was pretty good to be honest with you. Um, Lennon is a is someone who can be clear. Um, that being said, I think I think Lennon has a has a has a has a tendency. How do I say it? He loves to he loves to dunk on people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's he a big. That's roughly thirty percent of the book. I noticed. Yeah, he's a messy <laughs> bitch to love drama. He needs to log off, which is crazy because he <laughs> didn't have the internet, but he was still doing it somehow. Yeah. Oh my god, a- Lennon, you're obsessed with Kautsky. He's not even reading your book, bro. Well, you <laughs> muted. That's the thing. Is I mean, and a lot of it is warranted, right? As we'll get into, but. Uh, I will say, like, I've read a few, like, Lenin things by this point for the purposes of content creation, and I do feel like this one, more than the other ones we've read, is like, oh, you really called it there. That was a good point. Yeah, (laughs) 
But what I was going to say is that like online today, people just will be really mean to other people who they agree with on, you know, most things. And their justification is usually, well, Lenin, look at him. He was really mean. And this is really mean. He like needed to be all the time. And that was like, <laughs> like a lot of the stuff I'm, you know, I'm reading about Bukharin now, a lot of the shit between mostly from Lenin was just like not necessary and off times sort well, of like. We need to talk about um, the author, I think, before we get started, because this is an under discussed phenomenon in socialist literature. And that is Lenin as a bald man is a incredibly high T individual. Hmm. You can't be expecting to hold yourself to his level of like wanton emotional whiplashing that's going through his body at all times. It's a force that he used for Marxism historically, but like, don't try to be Lenin. The, the hate flows through him naturally. Does T make you more bald or less bald? More it bald. Makes you more bald. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. I was thinking about this in, uh, the Super Bowl in 2005 season, Matt Hasselbeck was a quarterback. I think like one of the first bald quarterbacks right. to play in the Super Bowl. It was a huge deal among like the bald men's groups in America. Why are you up on that? I just remember it being reported. <laughs> you have a full head of air. <laughs> at the time, as a kid, I remember reading about it in the newspaper. And I wondered, do those groups read Lenin? Because he was like a famous bald guy from history. Did they go through like the, <laughs> the bald, consequential bald men from from all time? Do you think they do? I think there's a shot. Yeah, they probably do. I'm assuming this makes perfect sense. This conversation reminds me of something uh, a friend of mine was talking about. He was like, "Man, a lot of a lot of guys our age just you know are kind of going bald or already bald, and that's why I'm growing my hair out just to dunk on them harder." That's right. Yeah, <laughs> you have to. It becomes a contest at this point in life. It's important to note for the listener, everyone in this chat right now has a flowing mane of hair <laughs> top of their heads. <laughs> for now. We'll see yeah. what the uh the revolutionary era does to us if we if we can hold on to our hair during this From upheaval stress, we might maybe. soon go through. Our hair might get blown off of our body with nuclear weapons. That's Thank true. God. Then we can join those groups. That will be high key after that. <laughs> That's right. You'd be in the bald men reading group and you would read Lenin and then Phil Collins. And that would be like <laughs> month to month for you. <laughs> yeah. Foucault, maybe. Also, Lenin had a goatee. Seldomly discussed. And we right. try to downplay that because uh, they're not cool anymore. But at the time, I'm sure it was like really blowing people's minds. Nowadays, he looks kind of like um honestly like lenin's look transposed into the modern world he looks like the me and my wife saw you from across the bar guy <laughs> not cool back then in context very cool honestly he looks like cypher from the matrix yeah he does <laughs> Pantoliano. as a materialist you must be able to taste the real steak yeah. That's a Matrix reference. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, also, I think goatees are a real Gen X look, but uh, let's totally. move on slightly towards the direction of what we're talking about. Maybe, sort of. Um, in the last month or so, give or take, I don't know who's counting the weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine, the takeosphere, it's been electric, it's been hot. 
Um, a lot of people asking themselves and asking the viewing public, uh, is this imperialism that Russia invaded Ukraine? Is it time to fight Russia as an imperialist? Is it time to fight America on behalf of the Russians to be anti-imperialist? Uh, you can, uh, the very popular opinion vouch, the internet thought leader has expressed, is NATO leftist? Anarcho-NATOism. Right, as a defensive military <laughs> pact, which is like, are you just like getting comments and then repeating them and, and on Twitch and that is literally the entire process for you? Like, I don't know how Probably you... Probably that and also getting money from somebody. Yeah, I think that's... That term in particular is a troll on his part, but it's not... Uh, it does seem like he's a defender of, of NATO. It clearly is. Under the assumption that, like, oh, a better, I, I want a better world too, but it's not possible right now, and therefore, you know, yeah, yeah. He, he's doing the thing where you pretend like your actual opinion that you really hold is a troll, which is not how that works. Mm. It's a tone it's of a voice, clever trick. It's working for him with all those, uh, with all those subs and panty dropping uh, takes. Yeah, I'm sure he's getting a lot of pussy. Bosh, the ponytail guy on the internet. He's one of these dudes who sound is American. Who he sounds like he's British, and I can't quite put my finger on it. But when he says certain stuff, it's like, where, where are you from? It is the enunciation of the words. It just wants yeah. to enunciate every single vowel in the word. Adolfo NATOism. Yeah, that's it's a broadcaster's affect. Yeah, it's the Atlantic accent. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like an FDR kind of thing where it's like, this is not something I would associate as an American accent, but it is actually uniquely American and uh, other people identify it as such. Um, it's worth pointing out, not just online psychos uh, off their gourd right now. You know, if you're if you're watching MSNBC at all, which I am not. Uh, there's a very common understanding, as we've talked about on this show, that modern Russia right now still is the Soviet Union. And that they are a unique threat to us in our war of the world that never ended. Um, I think oh, that'd you, be so cool. That was true. <laughs> I think like thirty percent of the American public has just decided it is true for no other reason than it would be kind of cool. Like it, at least in like the sixties through the eighties, America had like a narrative. Even if it was stupid, it, we were all on the same page that a thing was happening. And now no one can agree on anything. So it's like let's just take it back. The red bear has arisen. You thought it was dead. <laughs> yeah, zombie bear now. That's pretty cool. And the thing we don't realize, it, it was so close to not happening, right? Like in retrospect, it seems like, oh, that was always inevitable. And in America, you learn. Well, you either learn that it's still the same thing, which I guess they're teaching kids now, or you learn that this was inevitable from the jump because there was some problem, some error in communism in the Soviet Union, in their system, that just was inevitably going to collapse somehow, and that's that's not true. Again, you, you know, if you look at the details of how it happened, all the, the coups and the power grabs and all that stuff, like it very easily could have gone a different way, but still be there. I mean, the, the problem is that Stalin died. <laughs> <laughs> the zombie bear. I mean, it's also like cleverly framed in that we teach kids in America that the Soviet Union collapsed, um, which proves that it's not a good system is as in comparison to Western capitalism in the United States, which is not collapsing at all. 
that is a good right. system <laughs> working really well, which is supposed to stand in contrast to this collapsing. I mean, you could be like kind of goth and spooky about this and be like, it's all collapsing, man, which is kind of more true, I think. But yeah. like, the time of the raven is upon us. That's what they I mean, I think people. it's it's collapsing partially because it's it's one of the only uh, states, nation states, governments, whatever you want to call it, since I don't know the, the I don't know when you would trace the beginning of the modern era, but like basically every country other than the U.S. in the past 200 years has gone through like several different constitutions. And we literally have this. We've only had one, you know, and that's a corrosive thing. Yeah, well, the United States, the one pump champion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was the best one for controlling slaves. So we never decided to change it after that. So the question is here. OK, do we need to find out what imperialism means? Is the time do words matter at all? Like it, it doesn't seem like anyone is on the same page about what world we're even living in at this point. So uh <laughs> Is it important to figure out, you know, what this is politically? And the answer is, unfortunately, if you care about having an important take in politics, I mean, you gotta you gotta figure out what the words mean. So uh, this is a good book uh, if you're a Marxist on what imperialism is. It's pretty short, it, and it's very bitchy, which is kind of fun to read. So if yeah. you're into that, we have a great spark notes coming up for you and you can enjoy that. <laughs> I love reading Lennon, man. Even like, I think maybe like after I read something he writes like a week later, I'll start to see the holes maybe poke through, but he's just, it's very convincing writer. The way he frames things, it all kind of culminates at the end of his chapters and just fucking blows your mind with these incredible little observations and and for the most part i i think i agree with a lot of the stuff he's framing up here obviously a little bit's out of date but um you know the thing that i well i'm skipping ahead a little bit but like the thing about this book that i think really like i get it gave me like um like i don't smoke weed but like uh if i did a weird like mind-blowing moment where i put the through the book across the room and was like damn and looked out the window was when he was talking about how he's describing the moment that the world map is carved up for the very first time. And then it's like this epochal moment because before that it was not fully carved up by imperialist powers. And also after that, it would also never be the same because it was going to be continually recarved. So there's one single moment in like human history when like the civilization map is entirely fully uncovered and he, this motherfucker lived through it and is talking about it. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah, a lot of big, a lot of these chapters could end with like, and now tell me God didn't have a plan. Yeah, that's cool. A lot of uh, definitive announcements on some things. And also, and there are chunks of it. I think this is a good book in general. And it's pretty exciting to read. There are chunks of this that are very boring, but are extremely validating for the author because he's essentially watching the birth and rise of neoliberalism or just a higher stage of liberalism advancing at the beginning of the 20th century in a way that's like very prescient uh, and definitely ahead of the time. And he's also calling out all of the right people, as you'll see uh, throughout the course of the book. But why don't we get into it now and go chunk by chunk here and then if anybody has a hot take, just go ahead and jump on the track, shall we? 
jump on the track. Yeah. Okay. Do it. Yes. Throw yourself uh, in front of the train of history and see if you can stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with what happened in the book. Okay. <laughs> uh, the introduction of the book. Okay. The year is 1920. Big year for the author. Okay. We've now consolidated power in Russia. Uh, the civil war is raging or coming to an end. Not exactly sure, but we're describing the state of the world. It's after World War One. Capitalism, uh, or slavery in bright colors, is oppressing more than half of the world in this time. Kind of cute because we've definitely done the full lap by now. Uh, it's it's gone around. Lenin says imperialist wars are absolutely inevitable under such an economic system as long as private property and the means of production exists. This is his premise throughout the book, and I think he proves it really well. And then the second half of the introduction, which we also prefaced here, is uh, bars and bars ranting against the coward and fool Karl Kautsky, head of the Socialist Democratic Party in Germany. As we now know, the Social Democratic Party eventually gives way to the Nazis and the Holocaust. So kind of you got to just let him ride on this one. Uh, if you're someone who's normally critical of Lenin, I think even now you could probably take a moment and listen to him about some of this stuff. Karl Kautsky had just put out his own theory of imperialism. I'm going to be honest. They talk about it a lot in this book. Not super clear on what it is still. Ultra. I don't think anybody's talking about it anymore. Uh, I don't think anybody thinks that guy had the best ideas since he gave way to Hitler, but he calls it ultra imperialism. Yeah. I think he should call it, He should have said extreme imperialism or imperialism extreme. Uh, well, just to clarify something real quick that that's the post-war edition. Uh, yeah. That's the intro in 1920. Mm -hmm. The original text is, I believe, 16. Right yeah, I think it comes out in 17. Yeah, this intro is so cool. Like Lenin's so cool writing this because like he wrote nineteen, like he wrote the original work before the revolution, and then he writing this like yeah, being like oh I remember when I was just a just a bum when I was writing this. Like I was just like such a, I was like a nobody, and now, a now I look at this, and but I think something there's important to mention. You know, you were mentioning some of the discussion of people that like who claim they're on the left and making this defense of NATO. I just don't see see how that is anything different in like a reconstructed like argument of ultra imperialism, like in the sense of oh well, I mean there were no wars because the NATO and like you know the the U.S. hegemony there were so little wars and it's like well this is just what Kotsky was arguing but this is just not true. It's I, a policy. Yeah, I think you're right to point out that uh, no one in the year 2022 is holding up Kotsky's fucking ultra imperialism as a like a way a framework to understand anything that's uh going to be consistent and reproducible because it's reactive to i mean i what liz great about lenin being a huge bitch here and like obsessing over this fucking guy and just like tearing apart his argument piece by piece is that he's pointing out something that is consistent, which is the tendency of people in the position that Kautsky is in to form their opinion in response to what is happening and how it affects their personal footing in society. So like and you on the one hand, you've got what Lenin is describing as this like material, you know, rigid, repeatable scientific sort of framework for what imperialism is. And then you've got 
Kautsky's thing, which is, I think the the most i think the most telling uh part of the kautsky's definition of what imperialism is or what ultra imperialism or whatever the fuck is is that he says it's probably just going to make everything turn out okay which is like an insane thing to assume but he's kind of proposes this argument that all of these you know poles on the uh, the the fuck multipolar forces on the world stage competing with each other to like plunder africa and shit somehow equals progress you know the question mark in the middle sort of equation thing going on and like it'll all probably even out and make everyone have a good time at the end which is like you know all the the nuts and bolts of that argument that you'll hear reproduced today all the middle parts are different but the end is the same because what is motivating the person making the argument right it's got a great vibe to it I think what uh, what Jorge said hits the issue on the nose here, which is that all these World War One era texts have a very relevant feeling right now as we embark on this new age of uh, national conflict. And the NATO is leftist take is does rhyme a lot with uh, second internationalist defense of World War One from all these communists who essentially betrayed the cause and gave us this fucked up world we had today. It's really tough reading about early 20th century history and not just seeing these people who were attempting to be socialists as kind of the villains of our cause, because they really fumble the bag and we're left holding it for the rest of the 20th century, which is a rough go if you haven't read about it. Check out the 20th century sometime. And in the United States as well, right? They... You know, we're, it's kind 20th of twentieth uh, century schizoid man. <laughs> Sorry, I'm gonna keep there. You go the whole podcast. <laughs> That's the song. song goes. Uh, so yeah, but like there, it feels like kind of a shade of you know when there's kind of this Marxist line that uh, capitalism is can be a progressive force eventually because it it will enable you know Western bourgeois democracies to you know advance so far that they can just overthrow it. Um, and it seemed like that's and this it's complicated because that's not totally unapplicable to imperialism and imperial struggle, because that arguably is what allowed the Russian revolution. Um, but the way they were looking at it was just, you know, I think a bit short sighted Kautsky, who who he to his credit, he did leave uh, over the war, but he still thought that uh, Germany, you know, maybe we do have to get into a war because Russia is going to invade. Uh, we're, we want to be defensive against Russia. And that was just kind of buying the the line that the Kaiser was was putting out, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is difficult. It can be difficult to think critically in the moment, but but it's something uh, you got to do just for, yeah, try your best. Yeah. Go ahead and give it a try. Um, I do think this is the part of the episode where we should just get this out of the way. When people hear the word imperialism, they already have a meaning in mind, which is not something that matches up with the imperialism we're going to be talking about in this episode, capitalist imperialism, specifically as a special stage of capitalism, leading to its demise and conflict of revolution. Uh, When people hear imperialism, they think management of empire, probably because of how the word is shaped and what it's from and stuff. We are specifically talking about something else that it almost makes me wish there was a different word in play here because I think there is a lot of confusion over a very avoidable uh, 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 use of that, but what we're discussing is capitalism imperialism. If you are a socialist, surprise, 
capitalism has forged with imperialism. Your goal is to now stop the two of them. And we're going to read all about that in the chapters to come. Yeah, yeah I think that's like a really good point in terms of what you're saying, Alex, because it's it's not like imperialism and Lenin makes some note in that in, in, in the book. You know, it's not like imperialism did not exist before capitalism, but it's a matter of kind of what you're saying. It's like it capitalism just capitalize cap capitalism does capitalism so hard it becomes imperialism mm. i think that's like the argument the best example i can think of for the dumb goths who listen to our show is when you get to stage three or five uh, th- or four or heck even two of a late game final fantasy boss and they start as one shape and then merge into something much larger that you're familiar with maybe a man becomes a monster. I'm specifically thinking of Final Fantasy X, where you have uh, Tidus's father merging into Sin. The convergence of the two becomes your new enemy, and it's not that it's neither of them. It's that it's both, and that's what we're talking about for the rest of the episode. And those two things, what are they? Eh? Final Fantasy X, one of the better Final Fantasies. I feel comfortable saying that on a Friday night. I don't mind. I like I'll it. say it. I like Final Fantasy X. Um, Think of another example for FF7 fans. It's like Bizarro Sephiroth into One Wing Sephiroth. Mm. Ooh, right. Okay. Yeah. We can re explain for specifically FF7 fans. It all it works across the games, I think. Um, it's much like in Computer Solitaire when all the <laughs> <laughs> do that thing at the end, but it's uh you're you're playing another solitaire game for someone else who doesn't even want to play. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're making someone else play Spider Solitaire on a different part of the world that you can't even see. Just to reiterate your point, Alex, because I think it was a good point. It's like, um, yeah, he does talk about how like imperialism already exists. So this is a little misleading. The title of the the thing, you know, it sounds like it's describing this new phenomenon that he's calling imperialism, but imperialism uh, occurred in history before this, and it looked a little bit more obvious. And so a lot of times that we, when we think about the word imperialism. We think about fucking uh, Spain going and, you know, killing a bunch of people for silver and stuff like that. Or we think about Darth Vader and he's going to blow up a planet just to do violence or whatever. This obviously this text describes a um, imperialism as an outcome of capitalism, a eventual logical, unavoidable outcome. And mostly the imperialism that we're describing that is at the core of the process is a capitalist process of like accumulation. The fighting and stuff is like a byproduct of the accumulation, which is a really interesting kind of uh, important point, I think, because um, I just feel like uh, like dumb, dumb brain, like the obvious story that you're going to be kind of told, you know, at your school where they're trying to beat the shit out of your brain and make you an idiot is like wars are fought because people get angry at each other and then they want to go steal stuff from each other. Right. But these undergirding forces of capitalist accumulation are what cause the conflicts that then cause all of the fighting and stuff. Mm. Imperialism is when you export toxic masculinity. That's right. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Jake actually bringing up a very salient point we absolutely do not have time for, which is in the Star Wars universe, it seems to be a capitalist economy. So the kind of struggles they're having are like woefully detached from market forces, given the plot of the series. But again, we are on the prelude of chapter one through ten of (laughs) Lennon. So we're going to go ahead and move to chapter one. The Jedi's are bourgeois. 
Why do they blow Go up the planets? Anyone Can just yell one one line hot takes on Star Wars and we're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Progressive technocrats are the Jedi's. Anyway. Wookies are croats. Okay. Cool fit Nimby. Chapter one. Concentration of nothing wrong. There you go. Chapter one. Concentration of production and monopolies. So this is important because Lennon shoots a shot in the introduction and then he kind of walks us through the process of uh, how you come to those conclusions as the book goes on. Number one uh, is about competitive capitalism and its development into a monopoly stage, which is the trend he's trying to clock in this book. Uh, I have a quote here at the beginning. Free competition gives rise to the concentration of production, which in turn at a certain stage of development leads to monopoly. This kind of uh, puts us in, uh, this kind of gives us a view of the absurd situation liberal capitalists and classical uh, liberals are in of trying to maintain capitalism in a constant state of competitive business, uh, of essentially freezing time at a stage of development where production is being focused in a controlled and domestic way and you are having businesses compete to give you product. When there's 10 brands of toothpaste and then one is the best one over 100 years and they have way more money than the other ones, it leads to monopoly without outside intervention. And then monopoly, in turn, socializes production, which is what he's observing in 1916. Yeah, What is the big myth about uh, free market capitalism, right? That it's like this golden system that automatically organizes things into their best place in society. And that's why we have to like preserve it, which is a impossible because as Lenin shows us, it automatically turns into this second stage, this monopoly thing. And the uh, B the monopoly thing is bad. It doesn't lead to good outcomes. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he highlights that it does have positive uh, uh, um, externalities, essentially like, you know, oh, all of a sudden, the best brand of toothpaste is available everywhere. Oh, hooray. Um, you know, everybody's working on one product together. Under state capitalism, you could argue that they're trying to essentially recreate a lot of uh, the same phenomenon. But uh, under, you know, outside of the state taking your toothpaste that everyone loves and producing it, you still have all of your production being organized under industrial capital. So it's private forces in complete control of the economy. Another quote here, capitalism in its imperial stage leads directly to the most comprehensive socialization of production. It, so to speak, drags the capitalists against their will and consciousness into some sort of new social order, a transitional one from complete free competition to complete socialization. So it's a turn in the, in the order of things. 20th century capitalism does not look like 19th century capitalism, does not look like 17th century feudalism. It's a uh, shifting in the status quo, and you have to keep close track of it if you want to be a revolutionary. Then there's some ranting about opportunism and Kautsky for a while. We're going to skip that for now. It happens. It just happens a lot. <laughs> we can talk about Damn. it more. <laughs> opportunism, also known as cloud sharking. Yeah, I'm mm. so sick of cloud sharks. More like Kautz sharking. <laughs> or like Kautsk sharking. Kloutsky is what his, his name would be on Twitter. <laughs> he was uh, on Wait. today. Is Kloutsky um, taken? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Carl Kloutsky. Vladimir lean in and they're both just fighting with each other. Okay, so uh, 
I think it's something that's important to like maybe stop on here is that he talks about the two phases of capitalism. I know I just went over, but like, I think it's like kind of an important point because I don't know. I've been reading a lot of stuff, like stuff from the very beginning of capitalism and something that's like kind of um, in retrospect. I mean, it's, we just forgot about, I think, and it's not an important perspective anymore. Is that like at the beginning of capitalism, a lot of people thought that the anarchic nature of the market was going to lead to Mm. all of these great outcomes. And even people that, you know, I, we like, I think were in the beginning, um, you know, why wouldn't they, there's new revolution had happened. And so there was this, uh, this, you know, awe at this like thing, this anarchic market, um, what he's describing is he's sort of like telling people like he's seeding the ground that there are good things about um, this phase of capitalism. But what you have to understand about capitalism is that it's rotten and it's rotten to the core and it's DNA and that it will inevitably turn into the thing that we're describing in imperialism. So you like, you can't, you have to start the argument where it starts, which is capitalism bad and not, um, you know, we're going to move back to this phase that you just can't go back to. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, this next chapter, I would appreciate anybody jumping in here if they have a better understanding of this. Honestly, the specific format of my brain is I start reading about any financial transactions and I just turn into a blank slate and don't digest any of it. But the second chapter is about banks in the early 20th century. It's uh, banks in their new role. And it describes how when you think of a bank and, uh, you know, think of like the way you were taught a bank works as a child. It's a place where you put money. Right. So it's supposed to be this middleman of like you're not using money. You leave it there. Maybe they have some way to, you know, sustain themselves from that. But in general, they're just like a box you throw this into. That is not what a bank is anymore. And uh, Lenin is witnessing the transformation of that. I'll just read the quote here. It, it essentially transforms how what the role of banks is. Quote, this transformation of numerous modest middlemen into a handful of monopolists is one of the fundamental pro- processes in the growth of capitalism into capitalist imperialism. It uh, details how the bank is able to, through their investments and through their connections and role as a, uh, a financial center, flower essentially into a different organism in society, something that is able to control uh, production, despite the fact that they are not at the helm of any industrial production per se, because if you want to do industrial production, you have to work with a bank. And so they're kind of the hub of our society. Right. Yeah. So I think people tend to think of Americans tend to think of like financialization as a term is like a more recent phenomenon and, and not that that's not true, right? The financial system has gotten more and more complex and uh, convoluted and all that stuff. But uh, what Lenin is showing is that it, it did actually happen. It, it Things started moving that direction a while ago. And, you know, we think of it now as like, oh, production is gone. We're a post, uh, we're just an information economy. And the production just moved somewhere else, right? It's still happening, material, you know, factories and building raw goods, all that stuff is still going on. Uh, it's just not in the the northwest, northern, western countries as much uh, as it used to be. Um, and we get but, into that later. But right. the, the main takeaway that you need to have for this is the 19th century to the 20th century is the turn from the domination of productive capital to right. finance capital. 
The people who control the money make the decisions. Yeah, right. And that's what I was going to, it looks like the production at that point is still happening domestically. It's just led by the banks, right? It's going gotten a little more abstract. I think an important aspect as well is that, um, and Lennon doesn't really say this, but I, what he's describing is, you know, in, in Capital, Marx talks about a commodity fetishism, which for those who are listening that don't know, it's basically when you think when you get, when you buy something at the store and you're just aware of what you're getting and now what actually went into making it, like that's kind of like detached from you. Like you don't see everything that went into, say, making an iPhone, for instance, or like a McDonald's hamburger. So like that's why you're not, like you're not able to see that but you're only like focusing on the burger onto itself. So the fact is like when more and more capitalism occurs, especially in a, in a situation where monopoly capitalism, where not only has capitalism has become a predominant force in society, it has developed to the point where even the forces that make capitalism happen are concentrated in one company. So, and it makes it much easier for those goods to get out. So then when everything you see is like you're, you're like I, from a point of view of ideology is like oh you're, you're all all the production is detached from you then you start thinking on like a oh well all that matters is like what you're kind of exchanging so then those people who are only focusing on exchanging things you know i think lennon talks about this in this chapter about like capitalism starts incentivizing people who are only good at speculation and so that's what ends up happening with like this change in banks because they're the ones that are able to, to do that. You know, I think in, in the world of finance, this is terminology called OPM, other people's money or like that. And that's like a predominant factor in like financial speculation is like, well, I mean, at the end of the day, this is not my money. If I lose it, fuck, it's, it's not, that shit for them, but I don't, it's not mine. So I think a big thing was like, ends up happening was like, you know, Lennon talks about this new generation, just an older generation of bankers that are, you know, there's almost like a, a no, they feel like they're being like a noble responsibility of being this middleman between mm-hmm. like people who are trying to get credit and then them providing it. And this newer generation, which is, you know, this, this new turn for finance capital and banks, which is like, well, I don't really give a shit about all that, homie. I just care about making this dough. The quote I wrote down, banks choose to and are expected to intervene in the development of industry. So that's the big change is... Now, even if there is someone who is productively capable, you need to have finance uh, intelligence on this. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, so I think my take on this, uh, the important things to lay out here on the table are, on the one hand, you have monopoly capitalism, which is your Sephiroth of, of the situation. Um, it's a super evil, advanced form of a thing, uh, yada, yada, yada. It does monopolies, right? That combines with our Genova, which is this form of banks which have evolved into uh, a monopoly accumulation system themselves because banks start off as these things that like you said alex uh we don't think about this very often but they have like a private like they're private things that invest right they're private entities Uh, this is why you hear socialists sometimes talk about public banking as a way to get around this um but with the the private with the, the, the the incentive to invest these uh, banks that do what Jorge was talking about, which with the um, the the commodity fetishism and the alienation and the Marxist stuff, they uh, combine 
into a thing that that um, further separates the capitalist from the thing that they're profiting off of. That's another part of capitalism is that if you were the capitalist, you you don't know, you don't see all the stuff that really happens. That's where your money comes from. And so it becomes, you know, purely mathematical, eventually why you make your decisions. I'm going to do X because it it brings in more profit. I don't care how this actually because line goes up. I just care the line that makes me money goes up. That's yeah, all I'm it's like an inevitable outcome of the situation. You're ne- it's going to take a lot of the humanity out of the situation, and you're never going to have a capitalist system where the outcome is uh, something that betters the lives of the people that are working in the mines and all this other crazy stuff that you're doing with your money, right? So that is operating at both of these things. But what's interesting is, I guess, he describes this fusion of uh, monopoly capitalists entities and these banks that are operating you know in a monopolist fashion themselves and you start to have like a synthesis between them where you have members of banks sitting on the boards of corporations and like vice versa and it all just mucks up into one big fucking thing and it's like you can't take it apart after that i think i think i think I think the quote by Lennon, if I'm correctly, it's like it's a big club, you ain't in it. I think yeah, was that was Lennon. I don't John. Know okay. <laughs> and uh, Jake's point exactly ties into the topic of the third chapter, uh, which is where the book, honestly, in my opinion, really starts hitting. Uh, it's when the little threads he's laying before, which are a little dry, kind of start coming together. Chapter three is finance capital and finance oligarchy, and we're going to get into it. But essentially, the topic of the chapter really threw me back to freshman year in college when I was taking these classes on sociology and stuff and they were detailing like the issues uh, morally with the function of a corporation because essentially what we're talking about is finance capital and its control over every other element of the economy and in society. Uh, In a term that Lenin refers to for the rest of the book as the finance oligarchy. The finance oligarchy essentially are in charge of the rest of society. This is why when you have somebody who's an important businessman, they retire and work at a bank, or you have a president who retires and gives speeches to banks, or you have a general who retires and is then on the board of Halliburton or what have you. All of these social public elements are then fused with private enterprise. And that is what is driving the engine of society from uh, this point on and is right. the, the core of capitalist imperialism. I think that's really important. That is the third arm of the Genova Sephiroth fusion thing. The, uh, there are state, 10 arms. Well, this, yeah, because it's like a Cronenberg monster thing. The state is the guys in the black hoods that are like part of Genova, but they're trying to get back to connected to them and they're everywhere all over the planet. Mm. Um, mm. it's like, I think people tend to want to look at, um, stuff like banks and stuff like capital as being separate things from, um, you know, from the government or whatever. Right. And this kind of illustrates how, uh, I mean, once you have ba- like the, the state needs to borrow money from banks to do things. Right. So if you have this system that's mobbing up, uh, the incentives of banks and stuff like that it is now part of the cronenbergian blob of thing that's taking over everything right and one thing i really liked about this chapter is the term uh they're talking about the mechanics of of the oligarchy the size of its revenues impeccable and peckable 
I'm not sure who he's quoting there, but that's <laughs> <laughs> I just I didn't know peccable was a word. Maybe that's a little uh, Shakespearean invention there. I think he was being funny. Uh, yeah, I like that. Uh, even though, did uh-huh. you write this in English? No, I don't think okay. it was. I, I think you I think you wrote it in Russian. Okay. Yeah, uh, knowing Vladimir that, Lenin, I would say Russian. Probably. But that point is, that uh, line is in sort of a broader point about the bourgeois scholars and what their role is really is to, um, most of them anyway, is to sort of obscure the connections here between the state and banks and industry to kind of make them look like all separate entities and not actually do a real uh, honest analysis of how they are interconnected into a broader system. And, you know, the system that they see is, not that they don't see a system, but it's one that is kind of a fable, right? It's not It's not the way things actually operate. There are some uh, bourgeois thinkers and scholars who are, are more honest and, and do write about, uh, you know, how this stuff works in a way because they're, they're scared that it'll end, right? Uh, but for the most part, they're there to kind of, you know, um, gloss over things, as he says. There's like a really obvious point that could that should be made in terms of like understanding this which really i feel like a lot of us don't really make this observation but a five-year-old can make this because they just don't have they're just not blinded by ideology which is these people have all the power because all the money is in the banks it's where the money is like yeah (laughs) they will have more power it's really straightforward in that way and uh the actual nitty gritty of the chapter is kind of all over the place. He talks about the bourgeois definition of commerce uh, and how that's so disassociated with uh, what the actual production process now is. It follows these European ledgers uh, of uh, these large corporations in the early 1900s, and he compares their balance sheets to medieval palimpsests. That's a word I wrote down because I'd never heard it before. But essentially what we're detailing this chapter is very validating, again, because it is an early shadow of what's to come, the stuff we're super familiar with, which is corporate capitalism. Uh, You know, GE owns five companies that own 10 companies that own 12 companies, and they all operate together in one big homunculus that you have to deal with every day. This is the beginning of that. There's two quotes I wanted to talk about here. One is... Even in 1916 or whenever, when the first draft of this is coming out, we're still talking about how America is the model for this new method coming out. You know, we're not the standout Mm -hmm. power yet. World War II hasn't happened yet. But uh, he says American ethics have in the age of finance capital become the money thief of literally every large city in the country. So the the money-making enterprises are now on the top of society everywhere in an advanced industrial uh, land. And this is the the hot big quote of the chapter. We're getting really into the nitty gritty of it. Uh, He says, it is characteristic of capitalism in general that the ownership of capital is separated from the application of capital to production, that money capital is separated from industrial or productive capital, and that the remoter who lives entirely on income and obtained from money capital is separated from the entrepreneur and from all who directly concerned in the management of capital. This is what Jake was talking about before. Imperialism, or the domination of finance capital, is the final stage of capitalism in which the separation reaches vast proportions. 
The supremacy of finance capital over all other forms of capital means the predominance of the renting and of the financial oligarchy. It means that a small number of financially powerful states stand out among all the rest. It essentially carves out an entire new world order that we see play out over 10 wars in the next 100 years. Yeah, he says that the capitalist lives on clipping coupons, which I think is a really <laughs> funny way to put it. <laughs> I didn't know they had them back then. They talk about rentier states and usurer states, which is a word I don't think we use often enough, usurer states. Uh, well, probably because people would accuse you of something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think this chapter is quite good, um, you know, especially for because kind of what you were saying before, Alex, in terms of corporate capitalism, where this was much more predominant, say, 10, maybe 20 years ago. It's very, very much like a late 2000s, like early 2010s, but maybe mid 2000s as well, phenomenon of viewing politics or at least like, you know, kind of a anti-establishment politics being rooted in, wow, there's like a big like conspiracy, what have you, like everyone's kind of in, in on it. And of course, this is a long tradition, right? It's a, it's depending on how far you want to go, it, it can be basically anti, just straight up anti-Semitic, but this idea of there being like a cabal that controls the world. And in a certain sense, if you're just trying, if you're not buying the nonsense people are saying on cable news or politicians are saying, and you start looking at how the world is, you start thinking, well, these people go to the same school, they know each other, and yet the, the, all these things for profit happen. I feel like that would be a conclusion. To me, this chapter actually illuminates that in a certain way that shows, no, it's not just a cabal. Rather, it's just simply the fact that there are this strata of people above the capitalist, or but more better said, more special kind of capitalist. There's just this financial oligarchy. They're able to just tell people what to do because they own shit. That's literally what it is. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of this thing I always think about, about how, like, on J6, there was, uh, they were interviewing guys that were running around talking about, like, lizard people that own everything and stuff, and they just sounded like, if they changed a few words, they would sound like us, because they've come so Mm -hmm. close to identifying the problem, which is that there are a few on top that control everything on the bottom, but it's not mm-hmm. because of those people's character or their race or whatever. It's they're literally interchangeable. You could switch all the people out. It's the shape of the system right. of distribution and everything that that it's very important to not in order to not come to an anti-Semitic or whatever conclusion to look at the fucking historical timeline here and just see how all this stuff formed up to begin with, which is what Lenin is showing us, right? Right. Fascism is the socialism of fools, right? You know what the, the example for this always breaks my heart is uh, Russell Brand, who seems like he has the best intentions in the world, has really fallen off in the last 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And is fully chasing the serpent of uh, Semitic banks across uh, <laughs> international lines. And uh, he's he's just very close. It's just if you have the wrong information, you never going to come to the right conclusions. I don't, I don't well, know what to tell yeah. you. The maddening thing, the maddening thing about him is I used to listen to his podcast and one week he'd have on David Harvey and like completely get it. And they'd have like this beautiful mind meld. And then the next week, the exact same thing would happen with Jordan Peterson. Like it's Jesus Christ. It's all over the so place. So many good vibes. Yeah. So who's to say who's right? 
<laughs> yeah, no, that is really an observable fucking problem with the way that comedians have formed into like public intellectuals. I mean, it's the Rogan problem also, and it's just uh, it's just what no material analysis does to a motherfucker. You know, you need yeah. to look at this the way Lennon right. is laying it out in order to not in order to to call bullshit when Jordan Peterson comes in. I will say to this day, Russell Brand formerly being married to Katy Perry still blows my mind. And look, look at him now and look at, and look at Katy. Show. <laughs> Katy yeah, follows sure Jake on Twitter. Yeah, um, We were rooting for you throughout that marriage. We were all rooting for you! <laughs> Tyra, right? Shout out to Tyra. Tyra, uh, excuse me, sir. I, I will remind you that you're, you're speaking of Tyra Banks. She is part, She's part of, of the, the problem. problem of interiorism. <laughs> And I think Lennon has a great point in his analysis of Russell Brand's show here is that he's looking at the numbers doing his episode with David Harvey and doing his episode with Jordan Peterson. And he's saying, hey, our Jordan Peterson episode has a million more views than the David Harvey one. Let's go ahead and just have him on now. Yeah. Yep. And so for the entire minute, Cloud Shark, Shark, Carl Klautsky, for the entire middle of this book, we are essentially detailing the rise of neoliberalism call this uh, charlatanism or what you will, but uh, I'm going to bundle chapters four, five, and six. Let's go over the titles here. We have chapter four, the export of capital. This is where a lot of the graphs come in, which I might say, yeah, uh, the graphs don't load well on a Kindle. You can't really tell what what they say, but you just have to trust him on it. My font is really fucking big, so I could read them, didn't quite get them, but... I, try, I take the word of Lenin that they mean the things that he said they did. Right. You don't need to I check Lenin's work. Someone has done this, I'm assuming. It's definitely been done a lot in the last hundred years. Um, what is to be done? What? And, and that's a different book. Chapter four, we have the export of capital. Chapter five is the division of world among capitalist associations, which is talking about, well, you ever notice how McDonald's in Ecuador? You know, uh, chapter six... <laughs> Division of the world among the great powers. And this is when we're back to. Wait, uh, can I just spin? That, that's, yep. that's interesting. You say that about neoliberalism. I didn't quite make that connection. I think that's because we also with like financialization. We also associate that with being later on. But you're saying the seeds for neoliberalism were planted here uh, with the sort of the globalization of finance and capital and, you know, predicting that there would be international institutions that would sort of promote markets in, in different places. So I mean? think that you could define the beginning of neoliberalism as being here. And then the current phase of neoliberalism that we live in as being a later epoch in which this form of capitalism became the only mm-hmm. possible form of capitalism, because yeah. for a while you have this thing where you can have finance capitalism that has its tentacles creeping into other parts of the globe and the third world and is doing this while simultaneously having a regular coal mine going back in the home yeah. country. Right. Interesting. There's this great article that came out, um, I think, like the, the week of the election in 2016 called The Supermanagero Reich in the Los Angeles Review of Books, which makes the claim and I think makes it quite uh, convincingly that Nazi Germany was the first experiment in neoliberalism. So what being argued here, I think, in terms of the seeds and kind of showing on, it does seem to track historically. For sure. Everything we're talking about right now is covered in the second half of the book. 
I just I just think he was really popping off for this one. He's really calling these trends before they set in. Uh, chapter six is where we're getting into the mind bending stuff Jake was talking about earlier, which is the division of the world among the great powers. So all of these corporations are geographically tied, right? Like uh, uh, American banks are in America. In this example, because Lenin is Lenin and he's not freaking Hassan Piker, he's talking about European institutions in 1920. Uh the example we talk about at the beginning of the chapter, Africa and Asia are colonized by Western capital. So uh, in, this is where we tie in our emergence of finance capital into the older institution of imperial colonialism. And it's carving up the world, which uh, was already laid out under an imperial order and is then going and following up and financializing it and bringing everything into the modern era. When capitalists talk about this, they always talk about how many lives were improved by the development of economies in foreign places. Uh, we went to Africa and we gave them money and we started businesses there. It's, it's never talking about the exploitation under those businesses and the actual function of them. This is what Jake was talking about, uh, quote, for the first time, the world is completely divided up. So in the future, only redivision is possible. This is something you don't really think about in the 21st century because it's been your life the entire time. But previously, right. mm -hmm. people would just say, like, there's a new land. No one knew about it before. Yeah. Even if people already lived there and you could just go take it. Right. I remember being a little kid and we'd talk about, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you'd hear about like explorers. And I remember. Either I said this or friends are this. I want to be an explorer. And someone had to explain, mm, there's, you can't do that anymore. There's nothing to explore, right. buddy. Maybe if we find a way to. Uh, well, if you're a murderer, you can explore, I guess. That's kind of the same job. I guess so. Maybe if there's some <laughs> yeah, way to. like the people who are volunteering for Athov right now. <laughs> it is similar. Yeah. That is. Thank God. It's very dark, but that is one of the, I mean, in the grand like, view of things, the funniest uh, phenomenon of this entire conflict is Westerners and comfortable people on Reddit agreeing to go fight <laughs> on the front lines of the losing power in Ukraine and then just being like, they're making me sleep in a bunk bed and then we're exploding. I hate it here. Oh, this is the oh, uh, they told me this is the training. It's like, and then people in the comments are telling them, no, it, those are real bombs. It's like, yeah, but this is just a training camp. It's part of it. And it's like, no, you have to, under this is war. You're literally being bombed. You're not. And the safe. people who actually have the training are making the foreigners go outside with no equipment or training because you're just a meat shield. I mean, for that's them. smart. I mean, of course, that's your value as an asset. It's, <laughs> it is sad, but it is also very funny and that's the I, tough thing about it <laughs> see this stuff always makes me think about antarctica because it's the one place i guess because it can't be arguably capitalized or they haven't found a way to give it 30 years you think they're gonna do it yeah oh true yeah it's actually Once about it to be incredibly capitalized but that's where the un should be right now is because it's not fair to have it in a any country let alone the united states i think you're forgetting about under the sea Another Jake is movie. correct. Under the Sea is a way better uh, international meeting place than Antarctica. I just rewatched uh, Little Mermaid, and I will refrain from singing that song. That would be so cool, though, if they had a UN like dome. Just anyway. oh, there's so many great options for internationalism, and we're really freaking putting our foot in the pudding. 
right now. You know that you could have you ever seen all those like uh, uh, national outposts they have in Antarctica and in the Arctic uh-huh. and all those places that are like crazy Swedish super buildings and they they're shaped like M's and stuff. I don't know if I, I watched part of the head. It seemed like it had some of that stuff, but but yeah, that could be a, a good sort of uh, part of the pitch for international global communism is everything would be we would sort out all the logistics and stuff, all the politics in an under underwater like dome. Honestly, I'm can, sold. We could do communism in an underground sea lab. I was thinking more um, like a ultra mega imperialism once we discover that there's mermen down there with resources that could sure. happen too yeah d lab 2021 yeah right which is the past now don't think about it ah that's so weird yeah fucked up <laughs> okay <laughs> uh halfway through the book uh okay so the map is completely divided up imperial capitalist imperialism is now essentially the game the game has changed it is no longer Growth into finding new places. It is growth in redividing the places and assets other people hold that you don't have, which is the foundation of the point that Lenin is going for in this book, which is that capitalism causes imperialism. As long as you need to grow and your assets are confined to certain areas of the map, they will have to logically expand to other areas. You can only develop to a certain amount in your own holdings, which I think is very like visibly noticeable in this time and uh, kind of straightforward when, you know, the factories in your hometown are already at max production and they need to move oh, somewhere man, else. Do you have any more of that land? Do you have any more of that free surplus population? Come on, man. Come on, man. Need, I need another hit, man. I need to make a <laughs> PS5. Yeah, I think another interesting thing about this and the reason that it's like probably mega focused on europe other than the fact that lenin lives you know in the in that part of the world is uh the united states we had this like fucking dream of you know we're just gonna keep going west and never hit water and so there it took longer maybe for this like conclusion to come crashing down because uh we had this myth of expansion happening constantly and neoliberalism or what or you know the type of uh, finance imperialism, yada, 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 that Lenin is describing here, this thing that goes by so many names, is kind of what you get when you get to the ocean and you realize capitalism is a thing that by definition needs to expand. Otherwise, the capitalist is fucked and uh, you know can't keep doing the thing that is their only exist- reason for existence. Um, so when you run out of uh, you know space to keep moving and keep keep setting up more capital you eventually have to invade somebody else's country and then rationalize it in all of these various ways. And you can't manifest any more destiny. Yeah. So there's a few more points in this chapter. Uh, We talked for a while about how the people who advocate for imperialism in the 19th century actually completely understood the game and uh, would argue, you know, we need to do imperialism to keep class conflict from happening at home. Uh, You know, the same argument, but the other way. We then talk about how it's already in effect, even in 1916. He, uh, Lenin gives an example of Argentina, whose economy at the time is almost entirely dependent on institutions in London, despite the fact that England has no formal colonization in Argentina. It's just the natural financial colonization of the area. 
And the final point, because there's no more land to grab, countries which do not have any colonies will not find any later. If you have not already done a land grab, there's no more coming. There's no more land to grab. You can only get in fights over it. Yeah, musical right. chairs is over. Which yeah, is you got to the... get into one of those fights, those musical chairs fights. I don't know if you saw that <laughs> clip going around. It's fucking cool. <laughs> Is that a real thing? Musical chairs fights? Yeah. There's a really good TikTok the other day. It was some people just get into a brawl over musical chairs. It is a very intense game. And that's why it was in Parasite. Uh, not Parasite. What was the Korean show we all watched five months ago? Oh, Squid Game? Yeah. Squid Game. Musical chairs episode. It's in the thing. Yeah. I mean, you know who really feels this point very strongly is Latin America in the 20th century who has, you know, formulated their own statehood but is under um, the United States of America and right. not able to really milk that to their advantage in the way that they would hope they could. Yeah. We uh, have a Monroe. We have a doctrine that can allows us to do literally whatever we want to any of them all the time. We got a great doctrine going. You should see the doctrines. Are Did they agree to-, to it? No, but who cares? Yeah. Yeah. We agreed to it. It's good. It's going great for us. Um, Okay, chapter seven. This is kind of a recap chapter. Uh, Lennon's like, I've been, I've been really laying it out. I just got to look back on what we got so far. Okay, quote: Imperialism emerged as the development and direct continuation of the fundamental characteristics of capitalism in general. But capitalism only becomes capitalist imperialism at a definite and very high stage of its development when certain of its fundamental characteristics began to change into their opposites. When the features of the epoch, epoch, when features of the epoch of the transition from capitalism to a higher social and economic system had taken shape and revealed themselves in all spheres. So this is the game you get at the end of the game. It's the final stage. It's very exciting. Competition into monopoly. Monopoly is the transition from capitalism into a higher system. The, the way I'm thinking about it, and we'll talk about it, I guess, in a sec, because Lenin says like there's five features of imperialism. I'm kind of thinking of it's like the five pieces of Exodia. You get them together, boom, you get an imperialism. You automatically destroy the planet. What did the five features of imperialism say to the face, and then he slaps you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into that now. I got them written down. Five features of imperialism. Uh, if this helps you at home. Number one, concentration of production and capital has developed to such a high stage that it has created monopolies, which play a decisive role in economic life. Two, the merging of bank capital with industrial capital and the creation of the basis of finance capital and of a financial oligarchy. Three, the export of capital as distinguished from the export of the commodities acquires exceptional importance. That was the chapter I didn't really understand and skipped. Four, (laughs) the formation of international monopolist capitalist associations which share the world among themselves. New world order. Uh, Five, the territorial division of the world among the biggest capitalist powers is completed. There is no more land to grab. These are the five limbs of Exodia. You get it to form imperialism. Lenin then immediately goes, there's no point in defining imperialism. Definitions are useless. So I don't know why. Why even write it? Just because there's no Netflix yet? Fuck you. Well, yeah, this is, a, I think, in a, a point that a lot of and I've been thinking about this a lot today, especially because of Amazon. Right. Uh, I was surprised by it. It's a great it's a 
incredible thing that is that has happened. The Amazon workers on Staten Island and a huge facility have voted to unionize and against all odds and against the predictions of a lot of people who I've been uh, I you know was, was listening to, right? Uh, people who have organized a lot and have written about this stuff and studied this stuff very closely didn't think it would work because they didn't seem to follow and we'll find out in more detail what actually they did do and didn't do the Amazonians United uh, or the labor union um, to to get here. Uh, But this goes to show, I think that theory is, is theory, right? It's the best we could do in a lot of ways. Uh, it is, and I, a lot of Marxists, I think, make this mistake. They treat social theory right. and Marx and Leninism and Marxism and all this stuff as scientific fact, right? I mean, you know, there is the phrase scientific socialism, and there's a reason why it was called that that we could get into. But this stuff is we're not we're not uh, evangelical Christians here, right? This this these are broad trends, these are broad themes we can learn from. They're not going to dictate everything and that's why i think it can get kind of silly when people get caught up in like oh is this you know definitions right you're not a real socialist unless you believe x y and z you know all these terms have always been nebulous they're always going to be fluid and there's always going to be things that we can't predict by just you know copy and pasting formulas this really explains uh lenin's time very well and there are a lot of things we can learn from it from from our time now but it's not going to answer absolutely everything and it's not going to help you predict or foresee everything. Uh, and one, I was thinking about where to throw this wrench into the works here, because this is something I've been thinking about too uh, with this with this text, but uh, monopoly, right? It's connected to imperialism. I think that is true today as well. I think that's a good analysis. But let's say that, you know, the Matt Stollers, the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, they had their way and the economy was broken up and that and let's say they they're able to include like Raytheon, the military industrial complex and the banking system. They're able to split these things up. Would imperialism then cease to exist because there's no monopolies? What do you guys think? I think it would monopolize again and they do it some more. Yeah, that's kind of where I land with that is that what he's pointing out is this is a logical conclusion of those the state that those things were in. So you push everything back to state two, it's still going to get to state three, right? You can't hold things in place like that. I think the other thing too, so I want to say two things. One, regarding what you said, Anders, it's important to remember that a lot of the economy is structured with some of these large organizations existing, Mm -hmm. like Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin. They are so big partially because they have to be that big. You know, it's, there aren't like a hundred airplane manufacturers because that's an extremely inefficient way of right. making airplanes because airplanes are these extremely large pieces of like uh, transportation that require so much investment and people working on them that, yeah, there should be only like two or th- two or three or maybe even just one thing that's building them because they're so difficult. But so it's like, it's, it would be difficult to disentangle the economy in that sense. But yeah. on the other, on the aspect, I think what you said about social theory is so is so apt because, you know, I I do a theory podcast, but something we talk about so often is because also we talk about history is that they influence each other, and also history right. has a has a tendency, kind of like what happened with Amazon, is like sometimes things can surprise you, which is a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. But point being is like <laughs> you know it, it reminds me of um 
this maxim of like this contemporary American philosopher Tyson, where he says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yes, Tyson, or slapped. Yeah. As, a, I, as I've, a, I've read too much Tyson. Yes, <laughs> yes. Tyson. Night, reading it by candlelight. Um, this is kind of well. Okay, you know what? Your monkey wrench made me think about my monkey wrench. I was waiting for a place to throw I this. I don't want to be your monkey wrench. Stop it! Tell, Stop tell it! Tell Hawkins, R.I.P. <laughs> yeah, Foo Fighters. Oh, I'm not a big fan. Um, oh <laughs> shit! I didn't mean to say that about the. Okay, I get it. <laughs> I remember who died. Um, oh, man. I didn't really listen to the band. I'm sorry. Not important. The drumming was very impressive. Uh, the drumming? The early stuff. Yeah, it was great. Um, Love their early stuff. So, uh, okay, something that I was thinking about while I was reading this was that it's kind of interesting. You could almost accuse Lennon of contradicting himself because I think that at some point he starts to critique Kautsky's theory of um, everything's going to be all right, ultra-liberalism as accelerationism in a sense, because, because Kautsky does to some extent go, hey, I'm a socialist and I think that we should just embrace that this phase of capitalism is happening because uh, things exist on a progressive track that you can't get off of, you know, like in Final Fantasy VII, we can't get off this train. Uh, but the... He then later on sort of contradicts that by, you know, making the Marxist argument that, um, you know, we do have a responsibility to intervene Mm -hmm. in what's going on here. And you will only sort of come to a positive conclusion in which we, you know, harness and control these forces, you know, maybe by nationalizing certain industries or something like that by intervention and that's why he's calling for um you to not be a fucking passive liberal about this and not think you know uh, uh, imperialism it's a thing that's gonna happen and it's uh you know yeah don't be a cuck and let imperialism do its fucking thing all over you and then assume that it's this is going to end up um you know in in the in whatever in ultra imperialism or in crisis even and i think this honestly reading this book really kind of got me out of my own accelerationist kind of uh pit that i had had mentally and philosophically fallen into because there there is uh i'm having a hard time even explaining this mega galaxy brain thought here but like you 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 kind of can't just let things play out right like um this there's a reason this is a not just a critique but a call to action you know right right yeah and to kind of just clarify what somebody said earlier like i this is a good uh this text i think is a good reminder that and this is why i'm to be clear i'm not an an anti-monopolist not that i'm like a pro monopolist either but i I think we can't go on monopolism i'm a non-monopolism yeah I'm a polyglopalist. Mm. Uh, no, but like that is kind of trying to restore the golden golden age that never existed. Right. And and I think we have advanced and like, I do think history happens in stages, but they're not really evident to us until after they've kind of passed by, we can kind of look back and see what led to what, but in the moment you don't really, you don't really know necessarily, but I do think right now it is, we're not going to go back to, mm-hmm. to like a, fair competition society and and that's why i think and this goes back to amazon too why it's so important is that this could move us towards hopefully 
democratizing and socializing something like uh, in Amazon and other parts of the industry. And, and to Lennon's point, why would you want to? Because right. uh, you know, I, I you think I think about like say streaming services like. No, when it was just Netflix, the only game in town, it was quite great, to be honest, because it could just, oh, turn it on and then don't have to think. Now there's like Netflix, Disney Plus, HBO, Max, you know, Paramount. I it's genuinely just- think this is the most universal point every American immediately understands because yeah. there is no way to remember all your fucking passwords right. for the Showtime app. <laughs> it can't be done. Like and I just- don't, I'm not able to watch the new Twin Peaks. <laughs> Like you just don't need all these options for what? And, and and it's not even like necessarily saying, oh, because of like competition or the way people typically justify it. It's like a democracy, but it's not really that. So yeah, just, I don't know. Why complicate things? Why yeah. complicate things? Um, well, this goes back to, I think the reason this free, this pamphlet specifically is so goaded. <laughs> and that is because this guy, he spends... 20% of the book dunking on ends up leading the, uh, or, or um, his party, the German SDP leads directly to the advent of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. They gamble on the fact that if they ride out these contradictions, it will eventually work out for workers. And it doesn't, it leads to, you know, the old expression, socialism or barbarism. We find out barbarism happens if you don't inject yourself in at some point in the equation. And uh, the bet on continuing imperialism does not work out for the people of Europe in the next 20, 30 years, as we find out. Yeah, they really uh, shut the bed, didn't they? It's like quite remarkable. Historically, they shit the bed, and it's really hard to watch. And this does lead perfectly into chapter eight of the book, Parasitism and the Decay of Capitalism. Lenin describes parasitism as characteristic of imperialism. Quote, monopoly under capitalism can never completely and for a very long period of time eliminate competition on the world market. He uses an example of German bottle owners who find out about the uh, American-made Owens machine, which I've been to the um, Corning Glass Museum in upstate New York. They show you this original machine. It's uh, like this great steel behemoth that just kind of like twists and turns and puts out like a hundred bottles a second. It's terrifying to look at. Uh, and essentially some Germans essentially bought the patent to that and then just tried to like hide it from the world so that their business could do better. And spoilers, it didn't work out for them. You can't move backwards really once you develop a way forward. This is the reason we can't fully undo the nuclear bomb uh, and it's the reason bottles are being made 10 a second for the rest of our lives. Uh, you Bottles that you can't put genies back into. They're being made. You can't on genie the bottle machine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm a genie <laughs> the bottle. There we go. You gotta rub me the right way. Wait, you patented my genie bottle. Design, where am I gonna live? Also some loser shit if you think about it. Like, why would you like it's like why 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 hide it? Like why why hide like oh well I made this thing and then like oh can I see it? No, it's just like it's like I'm afraid you're gonna steal it. Like who cares? Like, <laughs> like in the sense of like you could someone could figure it out. 
You well, know, I mean, what you're tapping into, I think culturally we are all aware of, which is that liberalism is loser shit. Yeah. It's fucking dumb. Yeah. Another thing, like you were saying earlier, you know, that, that thing you said about banks and how it's just like an obvious thought, but you don't think about it because you're indoctrinated, you know, is like, um, I was thinking about that a lot because that's kind of the premise of Disco Elysium, this video game I just did a thing about because like you play an amnesiac who wakes up and immediately mm-hmm. becomes a communist because that's what would happen if you weren't like completely inundated with uh doctrine is yeah all the you know superstructure bullshit or whatever but like um the 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 big the big obvious thing here when you're talking about like whether or not ultra liberalism works or whether or not you know us competing with each other and buying up each other's fucking uh patents and stuff and and warring with each other this way works is you everyone is forgetting the the main like theoretical point of all this is the betterment of people's lives in society right mm-hmm. like if you if you keep that in mind while looking at this stuff from a macro view it's like well obviously no this is stupid right this doesn't fucking play out in a way that within a human lifetime fucking helps anyone it's only for accumulation um the rest of this chapter is about the decay of capitalism and essentially how it breeds its own non-function. And we talk about how imperialism has the tendency to create privileged sections among the workers to detach them from the broad masses of the proletariat. As an American in 2022, I really see what you're saying there. I totally get that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I Can I poke in? Sorry, I'm hogging the mic a little bit. But the, I was going to say, I think Jake has something to say. <laughs> this is a really interesting uh an important section to me i i, I think i think it's um it's interesting because he talks about the labor aristocracy and he talks mm-hmm. about this thing where you have people who are actually members of the working class but do not identify their interests as uh as such and so they live in a country like the united states and do not see themselves as being exploited by companies that own everything because this is not a closed circuit once you have imperialism happening it's not like we all live in america and there's only america and then like walmart is you know bad and we all understand it uh the the distortion that occurs through capitalism extracting everything from another country and all of the negative sort of uh you know byproducts of it landing on the shoulders of other workers creates a myth that a person can live in in the first world which is that um yeah things are bad but they're not actually that bad i mean working at walmart isn't that bad i get you know to i get a discount on buying you know groceries or whatever and uh it's interesting because it creates like um like this is why like you can't you have to be an international thinker to be a socialist really. And what he's doing here is kind of um, critiquing, like, I mean, you could use this, you could use this critique against democratic socialism, I guess is what I'm getting at and going, you're not doing socialism hard enough. If your goal is to still live on top of the labor of people in the third world, but then have health insurance when you live in America. Right. Right. That's what chapter three is about is how all of, this development proceeds off of the removal from one class of people from another. If you can create more of them, they're even further divided. Yeah. I think, I think in that chapter, I mean, chapter three or chapter, one of the early chapter three or three or five, I think, no, 
I think I'm thinking making a mistake. I think in one of the more later chapters, he talks about how the British Empire uses uh, local people for like subjugated people to then use them to police themselves, which Lenin uses as a way to kind of like almost it almost like unravels the imperialism. He makes the claim that it will unravel itself in the long term, which is, you know, a big claim to be making in 1920, but uh, alas, was proven correct. I, yeah, I, I think this, I mean, this pamphlet, even more than the other ones I've read, is really self-fulfilling. He's, he's really on the mark here. Um, There's also that thing where he talks about how, like, you can create the threat of civil war within the first world country by making people in the labor aristocracy grow resentful of, like, the people in the other country in South America immigrating into the yeah. country by the distortion by making those people not realize that is part of the way that you buy your groceries and stuff and like live and are comfortable. That's not like unrelated. It's like um, dirty laundry or something like you can't actually ignore it forever. Eventually it's going to come back. You know, it's just so important to look at this specifically because as an, as an, if you're an American, your entire political uh, framework, at least on an electoral level is entirely centered on this almost imaginary middle mm-hmm. class, right. which did not exist when this fucking book came out. How crazy is that? Kind <laughs> uh, <laughs> of to your point, uh, Jake, in terms of the distortion, you know, this reminds me, a friend of mine told me about, uh, you know, just like their, their point, which is like early on, like I think almost immediately after Trump became president, he has like this meeting with the generals and then, like, you have all the generals in the meeting, all the intelligence, like, chiefs. And he goes in there and he, and he asks, all right, can someone explain to me why the fuck we're giving all these money to these people like South Korea and, like, all these countries, Germany? Why are we just giving money away? And the thing is, like, the generals, like, no one was in the room to explain to him the truth. The general said, no, we need to maintain the rules-based order. It's called the rules-based order. Nobody was there to tell him the truth, which was like, sir, this is called imperialism. Right. Yeah, like the country that you live in will not function if we don't have these people hooked up like matrix batteries yeah. or whatever. Another good way, uh, metaphor for this, I think, that's happening right now. If anyone's watching the TV show Severance, it's really fucking good. It's on uh, Apple TV. It's uh, not giving anything away that isn't given away in the first episode here, but it's a high concept uh, sci-fi show. The, the premise of which is that this, these people work in an office and they've t- taken undertaken like a psychic Charlie Kaufman surgery that fucks up their lives and basically creates a situation where they have a uh, severance in their consciousness between their their selves when they go to work and then them mm. their selves when they're at home mm. and uh. it plays out in a way where they're the the person who who Ooh. has to work gets like really angry at the outer person and is like fuck you like why'd you do this to me and then the outer person is like having a great time and just like drinking wine at home watching netflix and stuff like that and it's just like what this totally works and they're like completely oblivious to the suffering of the other part of themselves mm-hmm. which is you know a good metaphor for like the fantasy that you can live and die in in america Class society you won't i mean you can literally never understand this and like you'll you know nothing will happen but you won't be right is the important mm-hmm. part of mm-hmm. this like you will yeah. not have a good concept of how the way the world actually works or why you are sitting on your couch watching netflix and drinking wine and it took We're in an incredible apocalypse for content creation truly some real hot shit coming out um okay so just for the sake of getting around to uh wrapping this up there are two more chapters I feel like they are 
kind of expressly um, contained in two sentiments. There's a lot of railing about Germany and the Social Democrats and opportunists and Karl Kautsky, but essentially chapter nine is the critique of imperialism. uh, And I feel like it can be boiled down to this sentiment, which is something we've been talking about up until this point in the book, which is socialists do not fight to restore competition. Socialists fight to destroy capitalism. Mm-hmm. Capitalism is imperialism. It is illogical to try to end imperialism without yeah. ending capitalism. Right. That's his critique, and it's a pretty good one. Um, right. And if, I don't know if he gets that, but the, there is, you know, tradition in, in the United States, <clears throat> our country, of oddly enough, and I don't know how unusual this is in other parts of the world, but anti imperialists who are not necessarily or just are not uh, anti-capitalist or, or socialist. You know, someone like uh, Mark Twain comes to mind. I don't, I don't necessarily know his views on, you know, economic systems, but he, he was an anti-imperialist. He, uh, he was definitely socialistic, you know, but I wouldn't call him a communist or anything or a Marxist by any means. Right. And he didn't really, you know, drive home that, that this is not to pick on Mark Twain, just to say that like, like there are a lot of people who, and this definitely goes back to kind of a nationalism Sort of, uh, you know, unfortunately, the kind of the most uh, strident or the most successful, I guess, anti-imperialists in the U.S. have been hardcore nationalists, right? Because they've they've made the argument that you know this is bad for we should get we, we got to be America first. We got to take care of the folks at home and not worry about uh, get intermingled in in other affairs, entanglements, foreign entanglements. We don't want right. those. That's that's the fun of Trump, right? Is how many wars did he avoid by being dumb as a rock, you know? Who knows? But yeah, but ultimately, like, you have to make that, you know, that holistic point that it's not just, it's, you know, we want, we do care about people in, in other parts of the world and, and we can have a, a internationalist sort of uh, system. Uh, but for now, that means opposing uh, war and connecting it to capitalism, right? And, you know, I think there are times where that can be feel like a convoluted point to make. But I think, right, you know, it's it's not a bad pitch to say to people um, the econ- your economic situation is tied to what we're doing overseas. Right. You know, you don't have to to indulge xenophobia. You can just say these bases in Japan and Germany and stuff. There's there's, you know, water systems in the U.S. that aren't being fixed. We don't have health care. Right. Uh, one of my dreams is to make like a website that shows dollar for dollar what's going to military bases and what could be going to infrastructure in the U.S. That, that is actually quite, you know, a salient point, Anders, in the sense that. Thank you. Like it, it's it, because it's not that like people people talk so much about there's so much debt in terms of like national debt and like the budget's so big. and I, I'm not an MMTer. That's like a, something I will be honest about. I think some of it's like kind of like not really like dealing with like the fundamental contradictions of capitalism. I think it's like a way mm-hmm. to try to obviate it. Like, no, that you still can have a lot of people who are still in control of everything. You're not you're not resolving that fundamental issue. But um, I think the fact of the matter is that if you look at the pie, a lot of the, a lot of things that could be part of the the state state uh, supervision. If, I mean, the majority of what the budget is just the military. Mm-hmm. Like, think about everything else that yeah. could be there. 
I will point out, just for Andrew's benefit, there is a usdebtclock.org that just keeps track of national debt for everyone, and maybe you could use that as a landmark for your innovative website that gets these informations out there for everyday Americans who just need to know the numbers. Yeah, I mean, if you are a psycho who's genuinely, like, concerned about the national debt and that's your, like, number one priority, you know, Social Security and welfare that that's a pebble compared to military spending unnecessary military spending that doesn't do anything it could be a whole it could be a whole other episode we're gonna do the last chapter and then we're just gonna hang out for a few minutes let's call it okay chapter 10 the place of imperialism in history this it's not the longest chapter but i feel like he's just kind of you know lenin's rhyming at you you're just hanging out with lenin he's just He's just shooting from the hip, but essentially, sensually, what Lenin says is uh, he describes imperialism as moribund capitalism. Capitalism essentially reaching the extent of its growth in a in, within its national boundaries, having to expand internationally, there being no more growth to just get because it's unclaimed, and it tearing itself apart. Uh, capital, the animal, essentially committing suicide, which I think is very interesting with, based on his later definition of fascism as capitalism and decay, because he's essentially tying he's tying in the fact that imperialism and fascism are kind of the same Ouroboros. Ouroboros. Was he the person who said that imperialism is or uh, fascism, rather, is just domestic imperialism? Was that Lenin? He is fascism and decay was the quote I found. Okay. Uh, you're talking about the uh, uh, imperialism come home, that thing, right? Yeah, it's the like, yeah, you treat your own country the way that the British Empire would treat, you know, India or France treated Algeria, et cetera. I can't remember who said that. It might have been him, but it's those are similar interesting points, though, I think. Yeah. Uh, I just think it's important to keep in mind that he died in 1924. So he might not have gotten all the hot fascism takes in yet. Right. So that's the role of imperialism in history is it is either the beginning of the communist revolution or just the end of society. And it's one or the other of those. And we'll keep moving in a cycle until we move forward from there. Yeah, it really is. It isn't it. You know, it's uh capitalism is or it's it's a uh, socialism or barbarism we're all watching the thing play out we're like shit can i make it not be barbarism uh may, i don't know maybe i'm having a lady luck blow on my dice say no barbarism <laughs> no, yeah no comma barbarism <laughs> no. <laughs> no no uh <laughs> So the, the the main question I wanted to ask the chat is we're all 21st century fellows, okay? We're we're all living in this digital age. We're on the apps. Uh, do you feel that the economy we live in is different in a material way that we should recognize from the one that he was in? I mean, the, the like nuts and bolts of it are obviously different, but it seems to me like finance capital is still on top of all the decisions made. I was thinking about this a lot because I got really kind of down a mental wormhole with the labor aristocracy chauvinism stuff and like how you can, how this stuff 
like manifests in culture and in the superstructure that comes back in to reinforce it and everything because i am uh, obsessed with right-wing shitheads and idiots and comedians and stuff like that and they speak this stuff without knowing it all the time it's bananas mm-hmm. i love reading theory because i i can read in lenin this him explaining yards and tons and tons of pig iron and it somehow gives me matrix vision that allows me to walk into a comedy club and hear this stuff coming out of people's fucking mouths and they don't even fucking know it it's great uh what sucks but it's interesting and like what what occurred to me that's different about our world as opposed to what he's describing here is that the the chauvinists that he's describing that live in the first world and that cling to the past in all of these conservative ways and do not understand the you know the parameters of their worldview and how their severed self is outside of it and how um the person creating all the value that they live inside of like a puffy cloud is somewhere else and all these things this dumb person used to have a different job right they used to have jobs that they would have for their entire life and that would kind of be the undergirding like um motivation for all of this resentment that they had Mm -hmm. as a worker you know about someone coming to take their jobs what's fascinating is no one has that anymore as you know in the modern world our jobs have been gutted into these like independent contractor things and these like gig jobs and stuff like that. And we all think of ourselves even as like, um, you know, as proudly labor aristocracy, because we're all, we all have a dream and we're all like an entrepreneur. We're trying to get a business off the ground and come see my stupid stand-up show. And I do improv and I'm going to act and I'm opening for this person, that person or whatever. And uh, I do Bitcoin or whatever. And yet the chauvinism still manifests itself. It's really interesting. I think that it's because it is like a greater, it's, it's the, it's like the greater broad force of this fucking thing is going to inevitably express itself through your life as a stupid worker bee in the middle of all this stuff, uh, no matter what type of you know worker you are, you'll, it's, you'll come to the same conclusion and you'll just find different rationalizations for it. So you have, People that are like, you know, in the kind of professional managerial class, even, um, you know, sort of expressing like um, things that ultimately redound to support for imperialism, which the only fucking way around that is smacking somebody upside the head with this fucking book and going (laughs) change your fundamental uh, ideology. Right. Yeah, I think what you said about labor aristocracy i think in general it's true i will say that there does still maintain one it's just become more acute in the sense that you know it's become more concentrated in terms of people who are professionals in the very in 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 the capital p sense your doctors your lawyers your engineers like that those those kind of free jobs (laughs) those are the ones that could be viewed as like proper labor aristocracy where they believe because they have these jobs they are somehow different than say other jobs but really they're just working for a wage but and can maintain you know have this job for a long period of time for their whole lives but because they're fundamental parts of like the engines of capitalism like you can't 
not have doctors. You can't not have lawyers because of property law. You can't not have engineers because you need to develop the productive forces. And I think, especially with the latter point with, en- with engineers and the world of tech, I think with the domination of financial oligarchy has only kind of become more profound because look at like, it's gone away from even like the stock market and the banks to even like this even worse manifestation of like private venture capital where it just wants to invest in everything and with the intent of like erasing all that existed prior that is not under their dominion to then force a new order. Like that's that's basically Uber, right? It's the same thing with like Airbnb. They want to destroy everything that is not already under their dominion of possible control. Like they want to get rid of all the other like hotels or, they, or like, you know, taxis. They, they don't want that because they want them to be under control. So it's that that to me is like the real like under underpinning of the gig economy. It's like this imperialism domestically. Um, essentially what we're talking about, right, is the development and advancement of divisions in the last 100 years because, you know, initially Karl Marx is really hitting with the guy on the steel line because there's obviously two classes. There's the worker and there's the owner. And then as that moves on, it could be the worker or the salaryman or the owner. And then the worker and the manager and the salaryman and the owner. And now it's like, well, I have a full-time job and I have benefits, but my family is still really scrounging. But my neighbor's a like lawyer and they make $300,000 a year, which is not any significant control over the economy, but they're way richer than I am. And like everyone is more and more atomized and isolated and completely alone in their struggle, which advances the reactionary uh, uh, agenda of keeping workers separated and keeping the next level of development from occurring in a workers' revolution in a socialist society. I had all this stuff, all these talking points we were going to go about for, uh, you know, Russia invading Ukraine again, because that, that's the thing that everybody's talking about. I do think that if, if you're looking into this book um, and you're a socialist, because I've seen a lot of smart people kind of tripping over their dicks about this because they feel like they don't know enough about the specific intricacies of the economy or political situation or Russia or Ukraine, there's nothing to know. If you know that <laughs> it's workers versus capitalists and that is the shape of the world, there is no war but class war for you. Don't bother with it. You know who your enemies are. Don't get distracted. Yeah, I think it's important to remember, first and foremost, that Russia is not the Soviet Union. Um, you know, I, it's I, literally not the Soviet <laughs> Union. We can't and, say that enough. Yeah, and, and I, and, you know, it seems obvious to mention that, but you know, I, I of course will mention my own bias. I have big defender of whatever you want to call it, actually existing socialist states, whether it be China or Vietnam or Venezuela, but, or Cuba. And, but, you know, that's not the same kind of uh, charity I would provide to say Russia. And since, you know, Putin, from my point of view, is a, bourgeois nationalist but i think that being said it just because what they're doing is like at worst at at best chauvinist at worst conquest and imperialist it does go without saying that to suggest that russia is imperialist it could be possible but i think obfuscates what's the more larger like two thousand pounds like gorilla in the room Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's obviously like a nuanced discussion to be had about like uh, 
national defense from Russia's point of view of what they think their conquest uh, 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 relates to NATO's economic sphere. And, you know, hours and hours of conversation you can have about, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether this makes sense for them or not. Well, I mean, if Lenin, you're a socialist, Lenin says the bed in, 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 in text. He talks about imperialism necessitates a great, you know, a, a, it's the, the, it kind of pushes back on Kotsky in a sense of like, he says, no, imperialism necessitates these great power conflicts. There needs to be a multitude of empires. You can't keep the Owens machine in Germany forever. That's all I'm going to say. We are super long. So if anybody else has a point to add, I'm ready to wrap up. Um, I, I usually just to say to anyone that's like trying to still parse out the the NATO uh, Ukraine Russia thing or whatever. I don't know. I just watched that fucking documentary, the the Oliver Stone Ukraine on fire one that's like banned or whatever, and it does a pretty good idea job of um, showing you the role of non government organizations in overthrowing countries and stuff like that on a uh, third world countries and stuff like that on behalf of the cia and american capitalist interests importantly distinctly for the role of like liberalizing and opening up um these countries for the tentacles of evil sephiroth genova capital bank imperial stuff coming from the first world over here or whatever so regardless of i mean it's, it's confusing because like I, the NED used to be a thing that would go and overthrow, help overthrow, um, you know, a country that was like socialist. And it's pretty easy to look at that and go, yeah, obviously the United States is using the CIA to overthrow Chile and uh, install an I, uh, a Pinochet because I and a was bad for U.S. interests and fucking Pinochet is good. Right. But with this, I mean, you like you said, Russia is not the Soviet Union, so it's not as though um it's not as though that this isn't like a, a thing where like the United States is interest in fucking installing all these right wing freaks in Ukraine is to to fight off like communism as much as it is just to keep installing capitalism, just to keep the, the, the thing open to the IMF and all this stuff so that you could just extract as much as possible. No matter what the fuck is going on down there, we're going to send in these fucking freaks to make the thing ripe for extraction, no matter what it is. I will say one last thing on this thing is really short one, which is that I'm the, I've come to the conclusion recently that the Ukrainian government must stand for one reason. And because if the United States chooses to, United States through NATO chooses to try to make this into like an Afghanistan in Eastern Europe, then I'm and the government of the of Ukraine falls. Then I'm deeply worried for the fate of like Europe because when you have highly trained Nazis in the National Guard of Ukraine and the government collapses, that's a very worrying scenario. Bro, right. we're getting white ISIS. It's gonna yeah. happen. I've read the yeah. tea leaves on this one. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought of a good white ISIS bit. It's like imagine this, right? You're in the desert and you see this truck barreling towards you, and there's figures on the back of the truck wearing robes and holding up assault rifles over their heads. And uh, then you hear this terrifying chant as they come closer. It goes like this: "Sweet Caroline." Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> That's white ISIS's battle call as they oh come. Oh my god! Destroy you. Something for nice. the Boston listeners out there. <laughs> uh, if I could just add one quick thing as well, like I, you know, uh, these 
their history doesn't repeat itself as we know, but the, uh, the broad trends are there. What changes, uh, I think, and this is something socialists need to keep uh, abreast of, if you will, is the justifications for militarism and, and imperialism. Because, you know, back 100 years ago, it was in a lot of cases just blood and soil nationalism, you know, less so in the United States, but still uh, a bit there. Right. We have a country. We have an empire. Uh, you know, with, with the Britons and the French, we got to defend this empire around the world. This is the crown. It's all that stuff. And that has changed. The justifications have changed. Right. Uh, liberal internationalism, humanitarianism, all that stuff, quote unquote, democracy. Uh, but the broad sketch, the broad outline of the system is the same. And that's what we we have to keep in mind was we're sort of uh, being hit with, you know, these are you not uh, do you not care about democracy? Do you are you, a, you know, uh all this other stuff. Are you an isolationist? Um, we have to, you know, keep the eyes on the prize. Um, my last note, and Anders did warn me about this before I watched it, but the number of typos in Ukraine on fire is unacceptable. It was so good. It was so good. It was so funny. How do you make a, like a movie? Like, how do you spend? I've been Oliver working on Stone. Yeah, I've been working on a radio play for six weeks and I spent all day just taking Adderall, looking at my computer, moving sounds around. Never would I like put the words World War One and then the wrong date on like an international released <laughs> publication <laughs> that like goes out with my name on it. It's very embarrassing. How do you do that? Uh, to, be fair, fixed, to be fair, Oliver Stone did not direct it, to be fair. He's, yeah, he's just in it. I'm, we're not blaming Oliver Stone directly. It's just it's crazy because it's, it's a good movie, but what the fuck, man? <laughs> um, let's call it there. Friday night, <laughs> it's 8 p.m. Uh, Jorge, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Where can people find you? What are you working on? Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me. Um, you can find me. So I have a podcast with Jamie Peck and Aaron Thorpe called Everybody Loves Communism. It's a leftist theory and history podcast. Um, we were currently wrapping up the same revolution, but we um, also going to be talking about other things like culture and also the news soon. And that'll be more regularly we'll be talking about. But in the works, we'll also be releasing kind of more of a season model of theory, which we'll talk about in the future. Um, you can find me at twitter.com at line, L-I-N-E, line goes down. And also, I just want to plug, if you are worried about international issues, especially about imperialism, you should get involved in the DSA International Committee, which I'm also part of, um, just go to international.dsa. international.dsausa.org, and would definitely recommend it. Great people doing great stuff. At least trying to try to do something from an anti-imperialist point of view in the United States. And they don't make it easy to find from the homepage. Nope. We're worth going to the special page for the International Committee. Yeah. Um, I'm going to hop ahead here for plugs. This is a big day for me specifically, and I have to say it on the Lennon episode. Season four of Theater of Delights is now finished. The Today's top audio stories about horses and girls and their ba- passionate bonds together, all voiced by me doing different funny voices. And they're, they're, they're wonderful stories, and it all comes out I'm going to put it out Monday morning and you can listen to it a whole another season of the show. Thank you to everyone who supported that. You can follow me on Twitter at Patak Test Kitchen. That's P-T-A-K Test Kitchen. And I'll see you never at the post office. Uh, at Andersley on Twitter, Thursley one on Instagram. 
where you can watch my old redacted segments uh, and subscribe to our Patreon. As, as discussed, we did a, a real fun app about Madeline Albright, the soul sucker um, on our Patreon and the cloud second, of a woman, the, the cloud of a woman. It was, we were trying to find a silver lining, something good. She did. I wanted to like her so badly. She really did nothing but bad. Uh, and you can find all about that in that episode. And uh, second, Jorge's call to join or get involved with uh, the IC, DCA, DSA IC. Um, even if you're not a member, a lot of good petitions you can sign, a lot of good statements that you can co-sign uh, and show your solidarity with socialist movements around the world. Um, what is to be done is to go to my live show, the uh, show Meat Space at the Gutter in Williamsburg. It's happening. The next two Meat Spaces are going to be while I'm on tour. Unfortunately, I won't be there, but you should go to my show anyway if you enjoy live stand-up comedy in New York City. Uh, my friend, I, I hired my friends to host it and stuff and booked all of them, so I, you can take it from me. Quality guarantee. The comedians will be good. Um, but if you're not in New York City and you're somewhere else in the country, you might see me on tour with Eve Six, uh, April through May. We're touring all over the place. Me, Eve Six, we are the Union, great ska band. The guy, Scottune Network, plays in them. He also plays with Jeff Rosenstock. Pretty cool, right? You should come see us. We're playing with Cat Bite. That's a great band at one show uh, in Delaware. And um, I'm also doing some shows down in Austin during the Moon Tower Comedy Festival because I am on Moon Tower technically if I'm performing the same week. Um, <laughs> that's it. Feral jokes on everything, you know, the, the deal. That's it. It's finished. It's finished.